in 2011, there was another article published in the ASHA leader, and it was as a response to Dr. Robinson's November article. This was by Shannon Haynes. And Shannon offered a different perspective on our title. She noted that as a prior school-based SLP, children don't always discriminate between different adults in their school environment, that if you are an adult who works with them in their school environment, then you're a teacher. And that being a speech teacher accommodates that child's perspective, as well as it gets on their level by simplifying terminology for their benefit. Welcome. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and received compensation from speechtherapypd.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13, Medical SLP Collective, and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Lauren Herman received compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. She is an author and receives royalties from the sale of her book. She is the content director for Medical SLP Collective. Lauren is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 3, 13, and 14, the Radiologic Society of America, and the American Interprofessional Healthcare Collaborative. Welcome to our first episode of Keys for SLPs. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Our podcast today is about advocating for the field of speech-language pathology with our guest, Lauren Herman. Lauren is a medically-based speech-language pathologist who is passionate about raising awareness regarding what SLPs are capable of doing across the lifespan. She is keenly interested in improving interprofessional collaboration. Lauren recently published a book sharing stories of her work experience, along with short stories contributed by other SLPs across the United States. Her book, titled But My Speech is Fine, is meant to dispel the occupational myths of speech-language pathology and take a step in the right direction towards improve awareness of our field. Hello, Lauren. Hello. We are so happy to talk with you today on our inaugural episode of Keys for SLPs. So let's dive in. Yes, I'm excited. Speech-language pathology is sometimes jokingly referred to as the world's best-kept secret. And because the majority of people aren't aware of the full scope of practice, and many SLPs discovered this career through another path. So how did you discover speech therapy and what made you want to become an SLP? So I never really knew about speech therapy throughout school, middle school, high school. And I hear a lot of other people who say that outside of maybe, you know, if you had friends who received speech therapy as a kid, or if you had received speech therapy, but beyond that, I was never really familiar with this career path. And it wasn't until I was working at a Cold Stone Creamery And I was training a new employee that my boss had just hired and she was a college student. So I was 17 years old, I think. Yeah, 17 years old, training this new college student. And I was just asking her questions about her life and her career path because it was time for me to decide what I needed to do with my life. (laughs) (laughs) And she had told me that she was studying to become a speech therapist. I was like, oh, okay, that's that's cool. You want to work with kids? And she's like, well, I mean, it's more than kids. Yes, I do. But it's, it's, it's not just kids. And so that's what sparked my curiosity. And she kind of explained more to me. And she was kind enough to invite me to sit in on her neuroanatomy class. So I took her up on that invitation, sat in on the class. And actually, the, the first chapter in my book talks about this experience because it wasn't just me sitting in the back of the class observing. The professor actually called me up into the front of the class 
and had me do a task in front of the students. And that was kind of that first big domino that pushed me into the direction of speech pathology. Oh, wow. That's huge. That's yeah. so funny. I bet you you're one of the only speech language pathologists who said that who can say that they entered the field through ice cream. <laughs> That's what I say, actually. I was like, you know, if I had never had an obsession with ice cream, I don't think I would be a speech therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so you became a speech therapist. Now, where did you go to school? James Madison University. Excellent. Okay. And then after school, where did you work? So after I graduated with my master's, I got my first, my clinical fellowship was at a skilled nursing facility in Richmond's. And then I've bounced around to different hospitals from Richmond, Virginia, to Michigan, Tennessee, California, Hawaii, Washington, Pennsylvania. Wow. So you've been all around. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so what prompted you to write a book about the broad scope of our profession? Because I have worked across many settings across the country, I think once I worked at my, oh gosh, I don't know, fifth or sixth facility in a different state, and I continued to hear patients saying the same thing to me over and over when I introduced myself, which was speech therapy, but my speech is fine. I don't need you. I mean, right. I hear, you know, because of whatever it may have been, a heart attack or even if it's constipation, <laughs> sometimes we're <laughs> <I'm> still needed. <laughs> so that, and then on top of that, it would be different physicians and nurses as well, but they would give me the response of, oh, they swallow just fine. They're on a regular diet. They don't need your services when really they did need the services of a speech pathologist because of cognition, communication, speech, language, voice, you name it. It wasn't just swallowing. So once I had seen across multiple settings, across multiple states, that this was such a common thread between just a lack of understanding, both from the patient's perspective and the medical healthcare professional, our referral sources perspective, that's when I thought, okay, I want to help promote what we do. But I, I think just simply giving in services to the few nurses and physicians I work with in this one setting, it's not going to be big enough. So I need to do something bigger that can reach more people. And that's when the book came to mind. Oh, that's great. And how long ago was that when you first had the idea to write the book? Oh, gosh, when I first had the idea, that may have been four years ago. And then I started writing the book about between two and a half and three years ago. Okay. That's great. I know we're going to talk about that book a little in a little bit more detail in an upcoming episode, yes. but I was <laughs> curious about that. So one of your points in the book is that speech language pathologists can be involved with patients, clients across the lifespan. And can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So SLPs have important roles, I always have to say from, from first to final breath, in my opinion. And I'll start with our roles surrounding infants whether prematurely born or born with a congenital anomaly or born with trauma or injury, we have roles. And the roles might include things like assessing suck and swallow patterns and feeding strategies. Infants who demonstrate rapid or discoordinated suck swallow patterns, they might be at an increased risk of flooding their mouths and aspirating material into their lungs. Or maybe there's a concern with reflux, which the child could also be aspirating. SLPs can assist with feeding strategies and adaptive feeding equipment. 
or maybe the child would benefit from a slow flow nipple, for example. So Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. you know, type of nipple that just allows small amounts of liquid to escape at once resulting in that smaller fluid intake. So maybe the child would benefit from, or another, you know, a longer nipple, which might be seen with a child born with a cleft palate. So part of the SLP's role here is also in coaching the parents, not just picking out, you know, adaptive bottles or nipples to the bottles, but also coaching the parents. And we might need to demonstrate new techniques to the parent and train the parents how to hold their child in certain positions for the best chances of feeding success and feeding safety. And this is just, it's also an interdisciplinary approach as well. So working alongside the neonatal team, for example, is really important for SLP. So I know we can feel like we're on an island and especially when working with tiny infants, seemingly fragile bodies, you know, it's really a approach. So then moving upward along the life continuum, we work with children in every manner from speech to language developments, both receptive and expressive to literacy, feeding, swallowing, cognition, social skills, communication skills, voice. So I dedicate a chapter in my book to my graduate level experience in the pediatric world, because really that's been my main experience. I'm more adults, but I discuss certain genetic conditions like moya moya, which is a rare condition where the internal carotid arteries these blood vessels that supply blood to the brain become narrowed, which limits blood flow to the brain and puts them at risk for multiple strokes. And moya moya, it's a Japanese term for puff of smoke, which oh. describes, it's really interesting. This yeah. is puff of smoke. And that describes what the blood vessels look like on radiographic imaging as the brain tries to make up for reduced blood flow by forming these new blood vessels called collaterals. So on imaging, it, it just looks like puffs of smoke. So Children and adults with moya moya might present with dysarthria, communication and cognitive impairments, or feeding and swallowing difficulties. And I also bring up autism in my experience with working at an autism camp one summer as an SLP student. And then continuing across the lifespan, we can work with teenagers and adults, genetic or developmental disorders, as well as trauma, which we can see anywhere across the lifespan. And with adults or older adults, we can work with dementia. So various diseases that impact speech, language, cognition, communication. I know I'm saying this a lot, but we do. (laughs) From the first to the last breath. And uh, recently I've been exploring our work in palliative care. Do you have any Mm. information in your book on palliative care or experience with it? Yes. So with end of life this is something I, I wish I'd known more prior to my clinical fellowship was our, our roles with well dementia and end of life. Asha actually outlines that the SLP may help someone. I'll start with dementia just because this will tends to lead a lot of times to end of life care. So, you know, with like dementia, using written words or pictures to help carry out tasks and make like, memory books, educate family members and caregivers on how to communicate better with the person with dementia and so leading up to that, because I tend to, when I worked in a nursing home, sometimes we'd have that transition because we also had hospice care. So okay. I would work with people who are end stage dementia, work with them with um, comfort, feeding and communication, and then maybe transition to hospice and palliative. And there's an ASHA article that actually addresses the role of SLPs in hospice settings. It's titled Speech Language Pathology, Enhancing Quality of Life for Individuals Approaching Death. And I think this is a great article for any SLP to read. I'll have to read that. Did you include that in your references? I did. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. Yes. 
this is such an important topic, but I feel like it's often overlooked when it comes to our roles. Yeah. Across the lifespan. So although I'll mention that SLP representation has been increasing in hospice and palliative care since the early 2000s, but there's another article published in 2004 and that's published in the journal of palliative medicine. And that's title, The Role of Speech-Language Pathologists in Palliative Hospice Care. So that's another one I put in the references. And it just outlines the roles that we have with end-of-life, including, again, communication, cognition, swallowing and eating, and even hearing. So communication and auditory comprehension, they're so important for dialogue between the patient's and the family, and the care team, and the patient has that right and should be supported to communicate their emotional, spiritual, and physical matters every day because their status is changing and they need to be able to be heard and understood as their comfort needs actually might increase with that. So I've worked with that in hospice and palliative care And I think I might even include in my book to a little bit just when it comes to like spiritual needs Mm -hmm. and the important role of the chaplain and SLPs can come in to kind of help train the chaplain how to be an effective communication partner. Otherwise, the chaplain's roles might be hindered. Right. So our role in consulting with family members, chaplains, other members of the team, we hold such an important role to help that patient communicate their wishes be heard, be understood, and also educate and communicate with family members to kind of help, I don't want to say calm, I guess in a way kind of calm their their nerves, because this is a very tough and vulnerable place. Absolutely. And it's a very sensitive topic. A lot of people don't want to talk about these things ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you're problem solving in the moment yes. when people are at one of their most vulnerable parent or the patient as well as the caregivers are at one of the most vulnerable points in their lives. So, yeah, absolutely. And I even have a personal experience just with my own grandmother where I was there with her, my whole family. We were very lucky that we all got to be with my grandmother in the hospice house, honestly, for the last hours of her life. So we were there with her when she took her final breath and it was just wonderful. We could be there to support her, but I loved the hospice team, but The hospice nurse, as my grandmother, I mean, my grandmother was maybe two hours out from passing away. I mean, it was her breath was just so wet and labored and she's getting the morphine. And we were just trying to keep her tongue moist and her mouth moist Mm -hmm, for comfort. mm -hmm. But then the hospice nurse had put in a dove chocolate in my grandmother's mouth. Really? Yeah. When that happens. (laughs) I, I guess in an effort to, uh, your grandmother must have loved chocolate. Did she say why? As she was like, you know, this is, she was like, this is, everyone loves chocolate, you know, so this is, we always have chocolates for everybody. And my heart, I was, I was a new speech. I was maybe two years out of grad school when this happened. And I was working at a hospital and it was beginning to dip my feet into hospice care from an SIP okay. perspective. But I just knew from a gut feeling, regardless of my training, I just knew from a gut feeling that my poor grandmother was really just wanting to focus on breathing and just, <laughs> just exactly. breathing. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> and that moment. And so my heart just, I remember it sinking to my stomach. I just jumped out of my seat and just, I mean, just scooped the chocolate out of my grandmother's mouth and continued to clean her tongue out and stuff. And 
I just kindly asked the palliative nurse, like, oh, actually, you know, I don't think this is the time. You know, I appreciate that you're thinking about comfort, but I don't think this is what my grandmother needs right now. We'll, we'll just continue to be here with her and moisten her tongue. You know, if we could get more two fats, just to moisten her tongue, that'd be great. Thank you. But my heart sunk because I just couldn't imagine if I had been in my grandmother's position, the last thing I would want is for a big old chunk of chocolate to be in my mouth when I'm just wanting to breathe and, and be surrounded by loved ones for the final hours of my life. Right, right. Well, I'm sure the nurse's heart was in the right place, but it was not yes. what was needed at the time, which is very exactly. interesting. You were, because of your professional experience, you were able to handle that situation. But someone else who would have just the gut instinct, I'm not really sure that chocolate is what she needs right now, might not feel like it's within their their scope as mm. the caregiver or relative mm-hmm. to intervene. That's a good point. So, That's a good point. That communication on what is needed in the final hours from a swallowing perspective ahead of time is helpful. It really does empower the other caregivers and the patient because Mm -hmm. the patient should be empowered up to the last breath. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just, again, I just can't emphasize enough the SLP's role. I'll admit when I first started working in a hospital, I was confused why speech therapy would be consulted for someone who was on their final days, weeks, whatever it might be, because my mind was so stuck on therapy, on Mm -hmm. improving, swallow, goal is to get on the least restrictive diet and all of that. So it was so grateful to have had that experience so early on because it was, it's just dawning like, oh my gosh, duh. It's so important to be able to facilitate effective communication because this is, it's always, communication is always important, but particularly in such a vulnerable point in your life or your loved one's life, especially for caregivers and family members, when they just want so badly, their mind is, I want to do the right thing. Right. I, I'm right. hoping I do the right thing for my loved one. But how do I know that if they can't communicate that to me right now and I don't know how to respond? So our role there, it's just, it made me fall in love with our profession so much more on a deeper level mm-hmm. because we can really be there to help facilitate such important aspects of just human life. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that personal experience. That is so important. Can you tell us about what some of the misconceptions about our profession are and what SLPs can do to promote improved awareness? Yes. So one common misconception, it's just that SLPs only evaluate and treat speech sound disorders. So that's an extremely common misconception. And I found that many SLPs resonate with responses like what I had said earlier, speech therapy, but my speech is fine. I don't need you. Or I talk fine. Or from a school perspective, my student speaks just fine. So trying to understand why are you here? And this is so limiting, not just for SLPs, but for people who could benefit from our services. I know there's a debate, you know, there's a debate around what our title should be. And this is another article that I referenced. Actually, I thought this was really interesting. It's an ASHA leader article published in 2019 titled What's in a Name? And this is where an SLP, Dr. Tommy Robinson, encourages SLPs to advocate for the title Speech Language Pathologist over speech therapist or speech teacher. And I know this is a common debate in our fields. You know, what do we call ourselves? Many SLPs, yeah, and and many SLPs might express their distaste for something like speech teacher or even speech therapist 
and others don't really have a preference. As for a personal preference, I think it's fine to use whatever title your students, clients, or patients will understand the most. So when I work with patients who have communication or cognitive impairment, I will tend to stick with a shorter and simpler phrase. So speech therapist. Okay. However, if I'm working with someone without, yeah, and someone without cognitive communication barriers, then, and I'm not there to just work on speech, then I'll use speech language pathologist. In my experience, using speech language pathologists can sometimes reduce the chances of someone telling me their speech is fine. Right. Because, right. you know, they'll focus, they'll hear the language, or they might even focus on pathologists. It might even lead the person to ask follow-up questions about what does that mean, which I love because instead of being told I'm not necessary, right, I'm, right. <laughs> I'm being invited to share with the patient what my roles are as a professional and more specifically what my roles are in their care. And then there's another in 2011, though, kind of as a follow-up to that article that I just referenced about what do we call ourselves, what's in a name. In 2011, there was another article published in the ASHA Leader, and it was as a response to Dr. Robinson's November article. Okay. This was by Shannon Haynes. And Shannon offered a different perspective on our title. She noted that as a prior school-based SLP, children don't always discriminate between different adults in their school environment, that if you are an adult who works with them in their school environment, then you're a teacher. And that being a speech teacher accommodates that child's perspective, as well as it gets on their level by simplifying terminology for their benefit. So to the child, it's a level of utmost respect. So that's just with speech. But even when we say speech language pathologist or therapist, it still leaves so much to be understood. So, you know, if you work with infants, right, then you might receive strange looks and comments because my kid can't speak yet. So negating both speech and language. So now I have to explain how we can actually help with feeding, swallowing and developmental milestones. So when it comes to what we can do to improve our awareness, I mean, that's just in our title alone with how do right. you introduce yourself, right? Kind of making that first impression or explaining your roles. But I have several things to mention beyond just introducing yourself and explaining even your, your title. First, I would like to bring everyone's attention to one organization called SLP Diversity Corps. And that's core spelled as C-O-R-P-S. Also, I think I added that into our list of resources. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a great group. And it was started by an SLP by the name of Amanda Berg. And you can join the Facebook group or and you can go to slpdiversitycore.org. So there's the Facebook group and then the websites. And this group, per their description, encourages SLPs to engage with high school and undergraduate classes to spark curiosity and mentorship in the field of speech-language pathology. The group fosters a community of real conversation about how people from all backgrounds can become an SLP. And if I had never worked, like I said earlier, like in the ice cream shop, I would never know about this. So I wish that I had known about this group earlier or could get let more people know about this group because it just really advocates and promotes ways for SLPs currently in the field to go out into the community, go out into schools, high schools, undergraduate classes, whatever it might be, to really start educating potentially future SLPs as well as parents, family members, and other professionals. So that's one organization that SLPs can definitely join and look into. Well, that's great. Is that the one that's based in DC, the DC, Maryland area? 
I don't think so. I'm not, okay. I'd have to look into that. I'd okay. have to look into that. So this that. is diversity spelled the way diversity is spelled. Yes. Just normally. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's another very similar one. Diversity, I think spelled C-I-T-Y. Oh, oh, okay. So I have to look is, into that. I have, I'm okay. not familiar with that, but I'll, I'll have to okay. add that to my list. Okay. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for mentioning that. Were there some other things you wanted to mention on this topic? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, just speaking, just so educating, like I said, educating parents, family members, and other professionals, doing things like posting numerous handouts around your facility, creating small gifts. I know like with nurses, especially, I always like to create small chocolate bags or water bottles or even throat lozenges, which would be really good for teachers who speak exactly. all day. Great idea. And add small messages attached to that that explain our roles. And then also just listening to friends and neighbors or even strangers on the internet who are asking questions that your expert knowledge would allow you to answer. So when you answer any questions you see online, so I might even see questions like on Quora, if you're familiar okay. with that. Uh, Quora is just an online community where you can post a question and then experts can come and answer okay. those questions. So there might be some questions like on that platform that could be related to what you have expert knowledge. So I might answer the question and I'll start by saying, I'm a speech language pathologist, and this is actually one of our areas of expertise. And then I'll go into what I might be able to offer them from my expert knowledge. So not only then are you able to give them an answer or some resources, but you can back it up with, hey, this is something I have expert knowledge and I studied this as a speech pathologist and they may have never known that a speech language pathologist would even study that. Exactly. You know, that's such a good point because that's such a little thing, just adding on that little tag before you go into your explanation. But that really goes a long way to promoting the field among people who are not familiar with the field or just familiar with the one little aspect of the field. So that's a great point. Yeah. And the final, final point that I do have, this one I think actually can pack the biggest punch is just sharing your success stories online. So even if it's on Facebook, now HIPAA compliant, of course, so obviously not giving away name or personal information, but posting on whether it's your Twitter account or Facebook, if you have a wonderful success story, I've actually seen some SLP stories go viral. I know there was one, she's a researcher and she shared a story about how she helped a child on an airplane. He was an autistic child and she helped the parent and the child, I guess, with a communication device that she actually had because she was coming from a conference and a speech therapy conference. So she pulled it out. She worked with the kid and just to kind of help, I think, he was uncomfortable or so- something was going on where there were communication breakdowns. And so she just happened to be sitting next to the child and just got out her goodie bag from the conference that she went to and, and just had fun. And the parents were so grateful. So she posted about it and actually went viral. And so many people then were like, wow, a speech therapist can do that. A speech therapist yes. has expert knowledge. So through yes. storytelling. SLP serendipity. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, again, always HIPAA compliant, HIPAA compliant, HIPAA compliant. So just sharing course, the experience, right? Yes. Just sharing the experience and just showing the world through story, through story of, of what the impact was and that you were able to foster something so wonderful through your expert knowledge and your expertise that really left a lifelong impact on someone else. I think those can really pack a punch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. So the final chapter of your book discusses advocacy efforts. What are some areas in the field of speech language pathology that you and others are advocating for right now? Mm. 
well, currently the biggest thing I've been advocating for is simply improved awareness of our fields mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. our broad scope of practice, you know, general lack of awareness. My concern is that there are a lot more people out there in the world who could benefit from our services, but just have no idea that they can because nice. either their their physicians or family members just aren't aware. So patients who are you know suffering from, for example, chronic refractory cough, which can really reduce their quality of life and even limit their speaking if their cough attacks are easily triggered. And I don't have a lot of personal experience with that particular issue, but I did have one patient who had that. And I was able to get him to use behavioral techniques to reduce coughing episodes to the point where he was able to speak with his mom over the phone for the first time in two years. And this was a combination of voice therapy for his Parkinson's disease and behavioral training for his chronic cough, which SLPs, it, it is within our scope. He had no idea though. He had been taking medications, cough suppressants, not talking to his mom because it would just trigger so much. He was just giving up on that. So between his new speaking patterns for improved vocal intensity with his Parkinson's disease and the behavioral modifications to manage and reduce the cough attacks, he could finally have his first 20 minute conversation with his mom over the phone. So that's a big, again, just my big area of current advocacy is just awareness of what we can do through our broad scope because of people like him where he had no idea an SLP could help with that and everything else he was trying was failing. So he was giving up. So that's one area. That is so interesting. Can you share with us being HIPAA compliant, of course, Yes. before he saw you, what was his course? And was he recommended to you by the ENT or had you seen him just in the hospital? Or Because it's so interesting that he would go to the point that he wasn't even talking to his mom. So this must have been happening a long time before he was referred to you and you helped him find a solution. Yeah. Oh, he saw pulmonologists. He saw ENTs. He saw every specialist for his cough. And he had, he had attempted different medications. He had, I mean, just buckets of throat lozenges to try to help suppress that a little bit, but it wasn't always successful for him. He ended up getting to me because I I currently run my own practice. So I gave a presentation to a Parkinson's support group about my private practice what I can offer. And then after that presentation, his wife had reached out to me and asked if I could evaluate him because she has having a hard time understanding him through his Parkinson's disease and his voice. And the cough, she didn't even bring up the cough because she didn't didn't know. Yeah. So that wasn't at all a part of it. It wasn't until I evaluated him and he was having these coughing attacks and he'd be triggered through some of our voice exercises too. So we would do pitch glides and then that would trigger a cough attack. So then it was also impacting our own therapy as well. So I then dove into the world of chronic refractory cough. I bought books. I reached out to experts, read all these forms, tried some of the behavioral modifications. And he was just so excited when he told me he finally had a 20 minute conversation with his mom, both with improved vocal intensity and no cough attacks for those 20 minutes, which is a big success. So that's how that happens. Wow, that's great. And good for you for being so proactive. And you haven't had any experience with chronic refractory cough before? No, that was totally new to me. See, and this is something even as a speech therapist, I didn't even know that that could be a part of our our roles. It wasn't in, until I'm a part of and I work for the MedSLP Collective, but we had some SLPs who that was an area they were specialized in. And okay. so they would 
post or answer questions for other people asking about it and they'd share resources. And then we got some of them to create resources for the collective. So that was even new to me. But because I had seen those resources prior to meeting him, I already knew in the back of my mind that, oh, this is something something that I, I can probably help with. And I have the resources to start working towards this. Right, right. Well, our our scope is so broad that there's just not enough time in graduate school to cover everything we might encounter. Yeah. So that continuing education, right. which is what Speech Therapy PD is all about and, and all of these wonderful resources that we have out there today. We're at a really exciting yes. time in our field, I feel. And part of that was highlighted by the pandemic and having to do so much online. But I feel like there's just an explosion of information, which is really exciting to think that you could not know anything about something and then end up changing someone's life so much to the point where they weren't talking to their mother and now they're talking to their mother through your own education. So I know you have another point though about this topic. So go ahead. So, because that was just one, yeah, one area. So other areas of advocacy that we're talking about. So what am I seeing other SLPs advocate for and what am I advocating for? Other areas of advocacy include increasing the diversity of our fields. And I'm really happy to see this really being elevated now. So while our profession is currently made up of about, I believe it's 92% white and 96% female identifying SLPs, joining groups like the Diversity SLP Corps that I'd mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and following social media accounts like the 8% SLPs, and that's the number eight. So the eights and then spelled out percent SLPs and SLPs of color is another one. And advocating for improving awareness and access to this field across marginalized populations can all lead to improved diversity in a field that truly serves a very diverse population. So it's, it's really important to be able to, I mean, have, have our field look more like and understand more about the people that we serve. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I do, along with that, I think as a field, as a profession, we need to take a look at some of our graduate programs. And I know there are more online opportunities for graduate programs, but you know, more part-time opportunities, because I think that would also go a long way in expanding the diversity of the people entering the graduate programs. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that is very interesting, I find when I tell someone I'm a speech language pathologist, and then they usually don't know what that is. And then I explain what that is. And they'll say, oh, a speech therapist. And, and then if it comes up, well, what, what did you do to become a speech therapist? When you say, well, I had to take these undergraduate courses and then apply for graduate school. And before graduate school, I had to do so many hours of observation. And then during graduate school, I needed to do clinical work. And then in between the years, I did an internship. And then after that, I did a fellowship. I think people are very surprised. They do not realize what goes into it. But we also have to, as a profession, realize that If we want to diversify, we're going to have to increase our flexibility, not change our requirements, but make them be a little bit more flexible. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Much more accessible. I completely agree with that. And you bring up good points too, just about like the internship experiences. And so, you know, I had an externship where you could work at a facility off campus and we'd all come back to campus one night a week. So being able to not only have access to those externship opportunities, but if you can afford to move to another place and pay rents or do the commute time, because 
So for me, I really wanted the medical placement and those are hard to come by. They're competitive, first of all, but then if you have the ability to, or, you know, the means to expand your radius of the medical facilities you can apply to, then that's more access for you to be able to get that experience. So, you know, for, for me, I was able to get an externship. I actually created that we didn't have a contract with this NICU in Tennessee, I called them out and I told them I really wanted to get this experience and we set up a contract. But I was able to go out and afford a single bedroom apartment to rent, plus the commute time, groceries, all that stuff while working an unpaid externship. And not everyone has that. Not everyone is able to, has the means to do that. So that was kind of a leg up for me. And I would love to be able to see changes where it doesn't have to rely so much on accessibility to money and being able to afford these opportunities in order to expand your career or get just the necessary hours to graduate. Right. Which is challenging because you don't want to saddle people with a lot of debt either mm-hmm. um, to enter a profession profession that is well paid, but at least initially, it is not highly paid, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That does lead in to my next point about just current advocacy efforts. So other things that I and other SLPs have recently advocated for, including gaining permanent Medicare coverage for teletherapy services, and also trying to not delay or not get the, what is it? I think it's a 7% cuts in Medicare reimbursement. So speaking of not paid extremely well, is we're also battling these Medicare cuts. So that impacts for me as a private practitioner, that affects my revenue for sure if Medicare is cutting the amount that it's reimbursing. And then also Medicare not covering virtual therapy. So prior to COVID, Medicare didn't cover virtual speech therapy at all. And it's it's illegal to ch- charge Medicare eligible clients cash. So if they had Medicare, I have to bill their Medicare. I cannot offer them a cash pay option. That's just not... I you're not allowed to that. do that. Okay. Yeah. So you have to, you're kind of bound to Medicare. So because Medicare wasn't covering teletherapy, that was really hard at the beginning of the pandemic where I want to keep my clients safe. Right, They're the vulnerable population. I'm not going to go to their homes and offer one-on-one therapy. They need therapy, but Medicare doesn't cover teletherapy, but I can't charge them cash because that's illegal. So it was so limiting. And so that's something I've really been advocating for. And I've seen a lot of SLPs advocate for. ASHA has on their action I think there's like a take action website where you can sign a pre-filled email to your state representative kind of fighting for and promoting permanence teletherapy coverage for Medicare eligible clients, which that bill did just get introduced to the House. So we're waiting to see if it's going to get signed into law. So we're in that process now seeing if that will get signed into law. Well, that's great. Well, how long do you think that will be before that decision is made, signed into law. Well, let's just say until it's signed into law. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. I never know how long these things take. I feel like it's just, it can be so up in the air. So I've been just trying to follow, I follow Asha on Facebook and on Instagram. And I think there's Asha advocacy. So I follow everything I can just to get any updates as they come along. So these things tend to take forever, mm-hmm, I feel like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just kind of this big waiting game. And then the hope would be that insurance companies would follow suit because we're still temporarily being covered by insurance companies for teletherapy. So yes. that could really change our field. I mean, our field has changed. If these things don't pass, we're really going to have to go change back 
it's going to be hard for patients. Well, let's just plan on it passing and go ahead. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, that's what I'm doing. Let's just be positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. So will you share some advocacy success stories that you have witnessed in our field? Something that has yes. happened, you know, before now. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I have a friend, Nicole Marie, and she is such an inspiration to me. She has successfully advocated for increased funding for oral pharyngeal cancer research, screening, and early detection by serving as a subject matter expert and contributing line-by-line commentary to a member of Congress for a national bipartisan bill on these topics. When she first said that, I was like, I don't even know what wow. some of that means. <laughs> that is a mouthful. <laughs> it is. I know. She posted about it on her Facebook, but it was so cool to see what she had done. I've learned a lot from Nicole and her strong advocacy efforts. She's such a great example of how powerful our voices can be when we use them to share our knowledge and our expertise in order to elevate the health outcomes of others. So she's someone who I see her just talking a lot with her state representatives, basically having phone conversations with them and them then asking her to be an expert, a subject matter expert to help and have her help kind of edit line by line what they've written into as like a proposal for okay. funding for research advocacy efforts, early screening. And there's an example of another SLP's advocacy efforts actually in my book, Ashley Kidd is an SLP. So this has nothing to do with government, like talking to state okay. representatives. Okay. This is more on a personal level what any SLP could do. Okay. Okay. So Ashley, she encouraged her colleague to get speech therapy services for her dad, her colleague's dad. So she was really advocating to her colleague, hey, your dad would really benefit from speech therapy because her colleague's dad was just diagnosed with head and neck cancer. And the the oncologist didn't recommend speech therapy, especially prior to radiation, prior to treatment, but Ashley really advocated for that. And so the family did, the family requested speech therapy prior to radiation or any treatments for prophylactic swallowing exercises, oral care, oral hygiene. And this man, he ended up receiving, so he ended up receiving the services prior and during his radiation treatment. And it resulted in him being able to maintain an oral diet instead of receiving a PEG tube, which actually the the oncologists were recommending a PEG tube. Their thought was, let's go ahead and get you on a PEG tube in preparation instead of let's get you speech therapy prior to radiation. So he refused the PEG tube. And I don't like to say refused. I guess he decided against the PEG tube because he had speech therapy. He only lost five pounds and was wow. able to eat the whole time. And the oncologists were so impressed by his results that they ended up including SLP services now as a mandatory referral system for head and neck cancer patients before they received treatment and during treatment. Wow. What yeah. a great story. All from yeah. your friend's recommendation. Just a family yes. friend's recommendation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is great. So yeah. how long ago was that? Oh, gosh. I don't actually know the the real timeline of that. I think that was within the past year, though. Okay. I just think that's interesting. That is so wonderful that it became the standard for that practice. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if that could become the standard nationally. I know. she shares that story. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. If if we have conventions, it would be great for that therapist to go and talk at a convention of head and neck cancer and spread the word among oncologists. Or exactly. even included in a journal article. So, well, that is a great, 
Great story. Yeah. Oh, and that's why I included it in my book too. So she was a spotlight story in my book. So there's a little section where she shares that experience there too, because it was just so something that we all can do. So it doesn't have to be so intimidating. You don't have to call your state representatives and be a subject matter expert in documentation. You can also just advocate services to friends, family, colleagues, and totally change a protocol. Yes. Yes. Oh, that is a great story. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So now you've written the book. And again, we're going to talk about the book a little yes. bit more. <laughs> but last time we spoke, it was in the final stages and it hadn't been released yet. Has it been mm-hmm. released? It has been released. Okay. So it's been released. So what do you plan to do with it besides obviously sell it, but what do you <laughs> plan to do it as far as advocating with your book? Yes. So I am in the process of actually reaching out to universities across the country. So I really want to let them know about my book and just see if they'd be interested in having their students read it, whether it's for an intro to communication sciences and disorders class or for graduate level students who have to start thinking about maybe oh, that's which a great idea. Yes. Yeah, to take. Because this is a book that I wanted to have as a student. I would ask other speech therapists, tell me about your experiences. I just want to know, walk me through a day in your life, in your setting, because I don't know what it's like. So that's mm-hmm. what this book is all about. So I'm in the process of reaching out. I mean, my big, hairy, scary goal is to be able to reach out to every single university in the country and see if they'd be interested in including this in their curriculum. And I've already had several professors reach out to me to decide that they are going to use the book after they've, they've read it. I had the program director of my alma mater. She was a beta reader, and I asked her to read it from the perspective, actually, as a potential university and whether or not this would be an appropriate book or a good book okay. for that purpose. So, And she agreed. Yep, this would be a perfect book for that. So that's one thing I'm hoping to do is to get it into the hands of students. I hope it improves future SLP's awareness of our broad broad scope. And also, though, 10% of the book's proceeds will be donated to a scholarship fund called the Donna M. Brellin Memorial Funds, which is a crowdsourced scholarship for SLP students to help with basic costs of living. So whatever they want to use the money for, they are given that flexibility. And that will help to advocate for just broader access to our field, just like you and I were talking about earlier. So if they have an externship placement coming up, and they just need a little boost in cost of living supports, then they can use the scholarship fund for groceries, for rents, whatever it might be. And part of the application process for that scholarship does require students to write about any areas of our field that they feel like needs improvements, and they come up with a potential solution for that problem. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that because it really encourages students to become aware of any limitations or potential issues and become better problem solvers for a field that they're directly contributing to. So I'm really excited to have this book also contribute to that scholarship funds. And then finally... I also hope this book just helps the general public and other medical professionals better understand who we are and what we're capable of. I hope that in turn, that it results in greater advocacy for our services and improves referral rates. I really am hoping that we get more referrals earlier on. So for example, one of the beta readers for my book was also my high school English teacher who 
She's not in the healthcare field. And I was so happy to hear her response when she finished reading it because she told me that she learned so much about the field of speech language pathology. And now she says she plans to advocate for her services anytime she hears about someone who could benefit. So something she knew very little of before reading the book, we now have a recruited advocate for someone out there in the world if they hear of any friends, family members who might benefit from our services simply just by reading the book. Well, that's wonderful. And you're creating a whole slew of advocates by distributing it to universities, to the students, Mm. you know, for students to to learn that they can be advocates from the very beginning of their careers or even before they enter their careers. And another good point about the English teacher is now she might mention it to students in her class or the career counselor, because I also find that a lot of career counselors at, at high schools are not familiar with the with the career or the field as well. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And as I said, I'm looking forward to our future presentation, but let's just pretend that you are at a book signing and an SLP approaches you and says, I love your book. It's so helpful to our profession. I have been thinking about writing a book about speech language pathology as well. What is the first piece of advice that you would give to someone who wants to write a book somehow related to our field that would also in turn help with advocacy? Uh, So first piece of advice is I always say just write down or document any meaningful experience that directly relates to what you're writing about. Write it down in a a journal or a diary so you don't forget. And it could, even if you feel like it's something small, I promise you it's not. Sometimes these small experiences, I've had people tell me like, oh, you always seem to have these incredible experiences. These these wild things tend to happen to you. Like, no, no, it's, it's actually... This is very, very common. It's just that I took the time to to write it down and really pull the story out of it and mm-hmm. highlight that deeper level meaning. I think when we get into the grind of our daily work lives, it's so easy to... I guess, diminish or not really see the full impact of your work as a speech pathologist, because you might be burnt out, you might be exhausted. And it's harder to recognize your own successes when you might be in a a bad headspace. So my first piece of advice is carry a notebook with you at all times. And as soon as you have an idea, or as soon as you walk out of an experience that you want to write about, jot it down so you don't forget so that when you are ready to sit down at that computer and start mm-hmm. writing things down, you you already have a whole book full of experiences to pull from and then to be able to weave into to stories that can really highlight the broader impact of what you're doing and how you're hoping to advocate for whatever it might be that you're hoping to advocate for. So keep that notebook with you at all times. That's always my first piece of advice. Well, thank you. And that is an excellent piece of advice. So you talked about how we as speech language pathologists can impact the lives of our patients. Can you tell us, respecting HIPAA, of course, Mm -hmm. about a patient who really impacted your life? Yes. Obviously, she impacted my life so much. I I dedicated three chapters to her in this book. Oh, this is great. (laughs) I have permission from her and she's unable to, to sign for herself or make decisions for herself. So her sister who's her power of attorney. She has also given me signs permission. We've talked about it. She's read the chapters, but I still, just for protection, I give a fake name for this. So in the book, her name is Kay. And this is a woman who I met when I started my clinical fellowship year at a skilled nursing facility. 
And she was a long-term residence at this, is, she's still there, a long-term residence facility. And she had the right, the entire right hemisphere of her brain surgically removed. So she had a hemispherectomy. Wow. And she, you know, she's younger. I think, you know, she was around me when I first met her, either in her forties or her fifties. And she could speak fine. Her speech was clear. She could eat fine. But, you know, she'd kind of demonstrate those, those right hemisphere deficits. She'd be impulsive mm-hmm. a lot of times. So they'd have to watch out because she would try to lunge out of her chair when she couldn't walk without assistance. So we really had to keep an eye on her. And she had a lot of seizures. And she had part of that hemisphere of her brain removed surgically from a gum abscess. And I talk more in the book about how she got that abscess, but it spread to her brain, this infection. Wow. And that's why. So her sister told me when I first reached out to her to ask if I could write about her sister was like, oh my gosh, she would be tickled. She's been wanting to share her story. Oh, so others so can learn from this. Yes. So, so she had half of her brain removed and she had seizures strokes. And then one day she fell and she hit her unprotected head. Her helmet was unfortunately not on at the time that she had fallen. And when that happened, her speech, I mean, she could barely move her tongue, her lips. It was extremely dysarthric. She couldn't speak. And I had to, when I first saw her, when she returned from the hospital, I had to kind of pick apart, is this language or is this speech? I couldn't tell if she's not mm-hmm. finding words or does she know exactly what she wants to say? And she is, but her, her lips and her tongue just aren't forming the sounds. So she taught me a whole lot in honestly perseverance and getting creative. So she was the first patient I worked with where I created a low tech AAC device, a communication book where she could point to with her good hands and kind of grow upon that. We did an alphabet board and she could spell simple words. But her the problem with that was her book is a binder. It kept on getting lodged in between her wheelchair cushion and her armrest or getting kicked under tables. So it was always missing. Right. I made a wheelchair friendly purse so that we could strap a bag and have it in there. And she like pushed me to get really creative with how to help her because she had so much to say, so much to say. (laughs) She could still scoot in her wheelchair with her one good leg. So she was zipping all over the building. It's just, she couldn't get her words out and she wanted to, of course. I mean, of of course she did so desperately. So she was the first person I got then a Dynavox high-tech AAC device. So a speech generating device. And again, that was the first time I really had to learn something new. I was the only speech therapist at this facility. So I had to reach out and find mentors and rely on the AAC rep or other speech therapists nearby. So it it pushed me to form my own SLP community to really support me. And my mentor too, who he was amazing. I locked out with my CF mentor. He was great. So really not being afraid to ask questions. So she, again, just pushing me to do all these things. And once we finally got her set up, I mean, she just took off. I mean, she could communicate, educating the nurses. It was my first experience with really getting the whole facility on board and broadening that education so that they didn't just rely on me to fix the device or set it up. Right, right. Right. That's so So, important. You're not there all weekend. You've got to have people in-house who can help. Yes. Exactly. So because of... Again, she had so much to say. So being able to really push myself to facilitate that and then get the entire facility to also know how to facilitate and support that and just make sure that that she could speak up. And it was also, it really pushed me to understand the difference between helping to give someone a voice and hearing that voice. So sometimes she would use her device to say something, but others might have ignored it or 
tried to lower the volume so that it wasn't so loud. So also advocating and hoping that I did a really good job as well by allowing her to use her voice and actually hearing it and listening to her voice and not making her feel like others could control her voice. So she taught me so, so, so much with that. And she's someone who will just always... I knew as soon as I met her and worked with her for the first time that she would be someone who would teach me a lot and hopefully I would be able to give her a lot in return. And we certainly did. What an empowering experience for both of you. That is a beautiful story. Well, thank you for sharing. You mentioned a mentor along the way, but is there, maybe you want to talk about that mentor or someone else, because it is so important in our field for all of us to be mentors, which is in turn advocating for our field. So often you'll hear of someone who knows someone who's thinking about entering our field and just that one conversation can help them along their way. So from that to being a lifelong mentor and anyone that you might want to mention who mentored you. Oh, it's so hard to just name one. I'm going to have to name several. Okay. (laughs) My very first mentor I see as a mentor is my wonderful friends and former colleague, Liz Lowe. She is just brilliant with the meta SLP knowledge. She has some incredible expert knowledge on dysphagia related to the heart. So, you know, cardiothoracic considerations for a speech therapist, things that I knew nothing about. And she really took me under her wing when I transitioned from my clinical fellowship here out of a skilled nursing facility into a level one polytrauma university hospital, huge hospital. She mentored me and just the way she did it, it can feel like an intimidating Mm -hmm. setting to be really in any hospital, Yes, but she really was able to teach just through her own actions. Everyone loved her all, you know, coworkers, physicians respected her. Patients loved her. She could make you laugh any hour of the day. If you felt like you failed at something, she made sure you didn't feel like that you failed, that it was actually a first attempt in learning Mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of an actual failure and just so much knowledge. Yeah. And she just... She taught me so much. I feel like my medical knowledge really exploded because of Liz Lowe when I was first starting out as a second year practitioner in speech therapy. And then also currently, now I say I do work for the MedSLP Collective, but Teresa Richard, she's the founder of the MedSLP Collective, but she's also huge on leadership and continuing to learn, always being a student, always challenging your practices, and also helping others to foster their ideas, their leadership goals. So I have a bunch of goals. This book was one of them. And Teresa Richard really supported that goal and helped me get out of my head when I was just like, oh, I'll sound so dumb. Or what if I say something wrong? Or what if I misspeak? What if, what if, what if? And she was just so wonderful at telling me, you know, get out of your head. This is a wonderful idea. So many people have probably had a similar idea. You have a a wonderful way of expressing these ideas. You need to elevate that. So she really helps to foster and just kind of feed into the positive mindset and supporting me and getting this book out as well as other goals that I have in the future for how I want to kind of go with this in the advocacy realm and helping other medical professionals advocate for their services, particularly if they're lesser known or lesser understood. So those are the two people. Again, I have a whole whole list of mentors, but those are the two that I'll bring up. (laughs) Well, we can talk about some more. I'll ask you the question again next time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So obviously you just published a book, you're working full time, you're doing so much, but can you tell us about one of your future goals? 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm currently working on, I'd like to be a, I call it a story brands marketing consultation service. So helping SLPs, but as well as other medical professionals. So not just speech therapists, okay. really market their services. So if they're offering, whether it's private practice, they're trying to grow their private practice, or even if you are a speech language pathologist working in a hospital setting, and you're really wanting to market your services to a specific team of specialists. So for example, I'm meeting with someone who is kind of going to be one of my beta clients where I'm going to help her brainstorm a presentation where she's going to meet with the cardiothoracic surgeons and market to them why speech language pathology services are actually crucial for patients who are receiving cardiothoracic surgery or any patients that have heart disease that are admitted to the hospital. So my goal is to help medical professionals basically tell their story to other referral sources or other medical professionals or potential patients or clients, Mm -hmm. basically tell their stories, market through storytelling and showing the importance of their services and how it can not only be life changing, but life saving. So that's a service I'm trying to kind of flesh out a little bit of how to help other again, medical professionals market themselves through story brand marketing, storytelling, because that tends to pack a bigger punch when you can market yourself in a way that's not just, here's a fact, here's a fact, here's a statistic. You know, Mm -hmm. this is why we're needed to, here is a story, here's a personal experience. And here's actually a story about a patient that you all have actually performed surgery on. And this is the path they took. And this is the outcome. And here's why. And this is what they're doing today with their grandchildren, or whatever it may be because of the teamwork that we put in together. And this is why we need to elevate ourselves so we can continue to grow the stories of other lives uh, that we're serving. So that's a consultation service that I'm currently in the process of working on. Well, that is exciting. Please include that in the references as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lauren. Well, thank you for joining us today on Keys for SLPs and sharing your experience advocating for speech language pathology. And thank you personally. Thank you for your work advocating for all of us SLPs in this wonderful profession. It was an honor to speak with you today, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon or next week. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a blast. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.